Welcome to Alfalfa, a free-flowing, irreverent, digestible, somewhat degenerate crypto podcast for all, powered by Collective Shift. Entrepreneurs and investors Armand Asadi, Nick Urbani, Steven Cesaro, and Eric Johansson dive deep into crypto, blockchain, DeFi, NFTs, the metaverse, and Web3, all while layering in the latest in tech, money, and politics, feeding you the alpha you need to grow. Make sure to check out CollectiveShift.io for crypto insights and alerts and use code ALFALFA for 50% off your first month. A friendly but serious reminder, this is not financial advice and is for entertainment only. Do your own research. Also, please subscribe to the show and tell your DGEN friends all about us. Now let us begin. Welcome to the show, everybody. Um, we are excited to be back. There is a lot of stuff happening in the world in many ways in the macro. And there's also not a lot of stuff uh, happening, especially in crypto. And we're going to discuss all of that. We're going to kick off with this alfalfa fire round. Um, quick announcement. Our Discord is officially open. The link is in the description below, alfalfapod.com. Our Discord is completely open. Anybody can join anytime. And um, yeah, hop in the party. We're like fully doing it. And uh, like we mentioned in the last episode, if you want to get involved with the community, you want to help us out with the show in any way whatsoever, pop in there, send us a message. DMs will be open and um, we're going to take this thing to the next level. So uh, yeah. Oh, let's kick off with the most recent review, Nick. We got a good review from Garrett Hoyos. The balance of wisdom and raw authenticity from this podcast goes far beyond friends discussing crypto on an exploration of the human search for happiness. Uh, it's a long one, but I'll read the last take is if you're looking for a down to earth conversation, these might be your technological spirit guides to making better choices, including stepping away from it all. So Garrett, thank you very much. Saw your review coming thank on you, Thursday. Uh, keep them coming. Keep them thank coming. you, sir. Yeah. That one made our day for sure. It was a beautiful I think review. He's talking about you, Armand. I think he's talking about you with your Hold second on phone. A second. Stepping away. <laughs> Hold on. That's for later. I got an update on that. Um, but no, come on. It's all of us. It's the compilation, the confluence of our personalities and wisdom. So yeah, thank you, Garrett. Big shout out. If you want to leave us a review, uh, you can drop stars on Spotify, but to actually leave a written review, do that in Apple Podcasts. That's the best place to do that. Cool, boys. Let's kick off with uh, the alfalfa fire round thing. I don't even know what to call it. We're terrible at branding. Um, Steven, you go first because then, you know, we'll look good right after, right? Not at all. Oh, we'll look terrible. Yeah. I mean, you got all the alpha. Yeah, la last week was another uh, another depressing week in the markets. Uh, <laughs> we had a, we had that little hopeful scam pump, but. As soon as uh, Barry Silbert tweeted that he was buying, uh, predictably, the entire market dumped. I was really tempted to short that tweet, actually. I really, really wish I did. <laughs> He's, he but, gave it see, to I us last time. When, yeah, I don't know what you guys are talking about right now. Barry, Barry Silbert, uh, he's a big, uh, big guy in the space. He started uh, Grayscale. Oh, you know, Grayscale. Grayscale guy. Bitcoin yeah. Trust. Yeah, he's famous for that. Uh, gonna be a big week tweet from like he screwed uh, us so much November, on which is you know right, basically the peak of the market. <laughs> he, he gave everyone become... a taste that like GBTC, the, the the ticker you can buy in the stock to buy some Bitcoin, was gonna be converted into an ETF, and that's what everyone was assuming. And yeah, that was not even close to happening. 
I mean, basically, if you just fade everything, uh, yeah, yeah, the alpha of this week is fade everything Barry tweets, because you'd be (laughs) very rich if you just followed that strategy. Um, No, I mean, I've just been watching the markets and, you know, trying to figure out when I'm going to get back in, in in larger size. I'm like heavily in stable coins personally, and in my uh, risk on portfolio, it's very heavy in like ETH, like I've, I've, I've definitely been selling down a lot of the, the altcoins because if you, if we, uh, people don't realize this, some, some, some new people, but even though stuff is like down like 60, 70%, like if we go full bear, like you can go down another 50, 60, 70, 80, you know? Um, I, I think sometimes people are like, ah, it's already down. Like who cares? But it could be a big deal to like save half of your remaining capital if that's, that's the case. So I kind of think like Bitcoin, ETH are the best things to be in if you want to be risk on right now, because like worst case scenario, if the whole market tanks, then, well, you could always just convert some Bitcoin or ETH into into Matic or whatever your little altcoin of choice is. But like if all your assets are in the the really kind of like out there shit coins and then those go down, you, you have no options other than to just, you know, be in it for the tech for a few years and and hope everything comes back. Um, also, just been trying to like think through some more bear market farming strategies, right? Like how to get more yield from the capital I do have. Uh, Stablecoin yields have started to really go to hell. Um, you're seeing like almost nothing now on ETH mainnet, and I don't, I don't think uh, I don't think farming stable pools is is quite what it used to be. And I think there are better strategies now. But we can uh, we could talk about that later. So. Yeah, that's what I've been doing all week. Cool. Awesome. Hit it. Take the next one. Um, yeah, I mean, mine's pretty simple. I think uh, probably most people listening should probably take the the same uh, alpha this week, and it's uh, do nothing. Um, you know, a lot of bad decisions during a bear market can be made. And uh, I feel like we're in a little Goldilocks. Like, we're, we're obviously in a bear market feel, but this isn't – you know, as bad as it can get. So I'm just standing on the sidelines, watching, observing, trying to understand where the risk is and, and how much the, how much we could go down. Um, so uh, I've talked about in the discord, but there's a few strategies in this thing and, and stick your head in the sand is one of them. And I feel like right now it's a, it's a good choice for me. You know, I don't, I don't day trade on trade, make trades every day, maybe once a week or, or even longer than that. So for me doing nothing, feels like a safe decision right now. I'm going to sit and uh, watch back. But uh, curious, um, you know, we've always talked about the stable coin yields during a bear market. So I think it's something we should follow, um, you know, because, you know, when everything's bad, can you yield off your stables and produce a return that beats the stock market when crypto's in a bear market? So that was interesting, Stephen. I think we should keep up on it. Something to keep tabs on. Yeah. Okay, let me uh, piggyback off Nick. Um so Nick shared uh, within our Discord something really cool. Like I, I think he, he just talked about it, but it's like it's in a bear market. You either move to cash or you bury your head in the sand and hold on to your hold on to your coins and just wait for better times. Um, I think there's like a there's like a third category you can do, and that's what that's what I'm doing, which is like I'm trying to reduce my beta while still like I'm taking action to reduce my beta while still holding holding the things that I really believe in. So like, like I want to hold my ETH forever. 
and I want to stake it. I want to earn 10 plus percent yield on my, on my staked ETH. But like, I want to be short the market too. So how do you do that? Well, like ETH is highly correlated to stock. So I'm like selling, I'm, I'm short selling shit stonks that are trading well above market PE multiples that are like not having like the same growth that we were already pricing in. So like the S&P 500 is, is trading at 23 times earnings right now. That's going to compress. Like we're, we're about to go into a recession, I'm thinking. That, that multiple is going to compress and earnings are going to go down. So like assets in general can still go way down from here. Does that mean I want to sell ETH? No, like there's, there's a few assets that I believe in that I want to hold for a long time, but I can still play sort of the other side on the downside as well. And, and part of that has been stables, but like, it's a great point, Stephen. Like I've been holding, I've been holding stable coin yields in LP pools. I was earning 14% two weeks ago. Now I'm earning 6% because everyone just keeps piling in, piling in, piling in. And now we got to find something to do with that cash. So that's like, that's actually a great topic. Can you give me an example of one of your shit stonks? Like what's, uh, a, what's a good example? Here's, a, here's the one that I, I really dove into. It's a uh, it's ticker symbol BFTR. It's the BlackRock Future Innovators uh, ETF. It, it's like a amalgamation of shit stonks. It's just like a, a great pool of shit stonks and all of them. Sounds are like, sounds, like, sounds like ARC. Is it ARC? <laughs> yeah, it's it, like ARC's <laughs> down even more, but like ARC at least has like Tesla and stuff. Uh, but like this is just like the, the furthest shit stonks out on the risk curve. And, you know, I, I'm happy to, to short that long ETH and have my beta remain a, a bit lower. And, Here, you know, here's an idea right for you. Have you looked into short farming anything on uh, mirror? I have, I have. And particularly on things that I, anything I, good, you get paid absolutely. like 20% to short. That's absolutely. Pretty particularly on things that you hold long in your portfolio. Like, cause uh, you know, while, while I'm saying I'm a really long ETH, there are people that are really long Tesla or really long square or really long Apple. And you can like play the short side on mirror you know, earning your yield on mirror while you're long as well, you know, capturing a yield. I think that's, that's a good way to play, but you know, pretty advanced, pretty advanced for the average user. Get in our so, discord. So this, Let's talk all about it. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's some stuff we can do. That's not like, like in, I, I don't know, like the, obviously the least advanced thing to do is just sell and just hold cash, which kind of sucks. Cause you pay tax. If you're like, I haven't really sold anything. Right. Cause I don't want to pay I don't want to pay tax. So I'm looking to do stuff like, like you said, which is to sort of like just reduce my, reduce like just my long exposure to the market. So there's like, there's like a few things I've, I've done. Like the most basic one I've done is to just short, like really shitty stuff, like, like stuff on Solana, right. That has like nine, $90 billion fully diluted valuations, you know, like the scam VC coins where like the float was really low, but then there's like, there's like a trillion dollars of coins like in the background that are kind of like waiting to be released. And now like that the market's turning, all the VCs are dumping and these things are just, just sort of going into the ground. So so those are fun plays, right? Right. You can kind of short a bunch of the crappy coins and then keep your long ETH. I, I think my favorite play right now, though, is to do um, short farming with like the liquidity pools, right? So, and to do this with like the blue chips. So like, it, it's actually not a hard strategy to execute, right? Because if, if say you want to keep a bunch of ETH, right? You don't want to sell your ETH. Um, but a coin like Phantom, right? Is going to probably be like higher, you know, beta than ETH on, on the down, right? Like when the market tanks, like, like Phantom is going to tank more than ETH, 
it just is right so what you can do that's like kind of interesting and like right now like phantom is actually like a really great place for the strategy because the yields are like really high like yesterday when i checked you could get 200 percent apr in a spooky swap uh like phantom stablecoin pair pool which is just insane so what you can do, and it's really simple to do this, is you 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 lock your ETH and like Scream or Geist or one of the lending protocols, and then you borrow a Phantom. So say you get ten thousand dollars of ETH. Well, you can borrow like six or seven thousand dollars worth of Phantom or whatever you you know however you want to maintain that position, and then you can sell half of it for stables and then put it into one of those pools. So what you've just done is you've created like a semi-short position because you sold half of your phantom. So if phantom goes down, the market goes down, you're going to profit on that. But then that position is also right now paying you, you know, 200% a year. And like, look, realistically, that'll probably compress to like 30 or 40% in in the near term. But it's like, it's kind of this like cool position where if like the market goes sideways completely, well, you just make 40%, which is good. If the market goes down... Well, you make 40% and you make money on your phantom short, right? And if the market goes up, well, you lose money on that, but you're kind of happy because your larger ETH position is going up more, right? It's like it's like a nice hedge. It takes like a lot of mental weight off. You become a little more indifferent to what the market does, and then you gain a little more mm-hmm. clarity to, to, to make those decisions, right? You also have flexibility, right? If the market really tanks and you're in one of these pools, like what, what happens in these pools when the market tanks is you, you get more of like the... The, the coin that you put in, like the phantom, right? So if the market tanks, you're going to end up with like tons of phantom and less USDC because the pools are going to balance out. So you have a 50-50 ratio of both. You're buying And if dip. that happens, yeah, you're, you're sort of buying the dip automatically. And then what you can do is you could either, you know, just let that kind of come back to even as the price goes up. Or you could be like, nah, I just want to hold this coin now. You could pull all of your liquidity out of the pool. You can keep the phantom. You now have more phantom or more AVAX or whatever coin you're farming, right? And when you ride that up, you've got more money and you have you have more coins than what you borrowed and you kind of book that profit. So it gives you all this like flexibility to do interesting stuff to avoid paying tax. Like if you've got these like kind of gains on like your larger position. Um, so that's a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about doing and I've been doing some crazier stuff that's probably not suitable for the for this that was even a, that was a free tutorial that was a free tutorial on how to short uh crypto tokens that was that was good that was good yeah it's like, get paid to short you're getting yeah. paid to short basically because you're getting paid that interest in the pool it's a cool feature of crypto that that doesn't really exist anywhere else you know you can't really can't really do that in your stock stock brokerage account you know can't really get like paid to short Microsoft often provide liquidity. It's just it's just not a thing. I'll check with the Good JP job. Morgan advisor just to verify, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so was that like an alfalfa fire round or what, that what was, was that? That, that was. I didn't even get to go. Like do you guys you, you guys can go now. You guys don't do structure. Like <laughs> Hold can on. we First just of all, we did, that was we ridiculous. Did 11 minutes. We did 11 minutes. That's the quickest fire round we've ever done. The, I uh, haven't so. even gone. I haven't well, even you've gone. got plenty of time, but like last, no. our, our you guys, record was 14 minutes. If you get, you can just, you can go quickly. That was, that was, I don't know what that was, guys. You guys, <laughs> you guys literally need a Stop. true dictator. Like we need like timers, dictators, like your turn. Well, we need nope. Steven's advanced that was, strategies first to go of all, into Discord. Steven I, was, had already gone I, once. I apologize Then Eric nothing. went, then Eric went. First of all, I, I won't, I won't allow it. I, I thought I was going to allow it. I'm removing the whole thing from the recording. <laughs> you see, you don't realize the power of post-production, Stephen. 
<laughs> um, okay. Let it rip, my friend. Yeah, what? I just, that was like too deep. I'm like lost now in that thought. Okay, so alfalfa for the week. Um, financially, mine is very similar to you, Nick. It's a it's a sit, wait, put you know, sit on my hands, watch what happens. Uh, don't make any emotional decisions. Uh, don't sell anything that I that I currently own. I am not a trader as well. I mean, my moves are more like once every two weeks maximum. So for me, it's like. Uh, there's there's nothing that I would need to to sell at this point anyway, and so to react emotionally against it or to try to try to find some advantage in this market is not not for me right now. Um, the main thing I've been thinking about is like general life alfalfa with the chaos of everything going on lately. You know, we talked about war, um, Ukraine getting invaded in the last episode. We talked about the threat of nuclear and that discussion, the fact that those words are even being mentioned. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the amount of information we have access to. So I'm kind of planting a seed for later in the conversation. And the main thing that I've taken away from all of this is how important meditation is. And I actually started my daily meditation practice that I have not been on for quite a while. I think it's been at least like six, seven months since I consistently meditated. And uh, I'm doing a little experiment to see how that goes and how I feel. And I'm already three, four days in and it's an incredible impact. So it's kind of part of my whole game plan of what I've been really experimenting with lately, which is an information diet, which is uh, removing the drug from the system by having that second iPhone. I'll talk more about that again later. And uh, ultimately de- becoming the observer of the thoughts again because the thoughts had really started to take control and I was identifying with the thoughts thinking that this is actually reality and not realizing that what I was focusing on was just completely taking me away from what I really cared about. There's only so much you can care about in life. So planting a seed, that's what I've been thinking about. And um, yeah, I've been going really deep on that on that topic lately. But okay. We get it insight into your protocol was it like a an app or you sitting for 10 minutes what are you doing into for the meditation oh um i yeah no i just do like i usually do guided meditations yeah i do like uh usually 20 minutes i pick like something random off insight timer app usually uh that's my favorite meditation app and uh or i just listen to like a background sound both. I clothed? can be anywhere. Anywhere. Usually unclothed. <laughs> Usually not clothed. Yeah. The freer, the better, you know. The freer, the better. The natural state uh, connects me to connects me to Mother Earth. No, I'm not a very uh, I'm not very woo woo about it. I can even be just like uh, I, I've experimented with like Tibetan style, um, Tibetan Buddhism style meditation as well, where your eyes are just open and you're doing what you're already doing and you just find little pockets of meditation. But when I'm actually meditating, it's like 20 minutes, sound on, guided. Yeah, we'll, we can talk more about it. Watching red charts go down into the right. Is that part of the <laughs> observation? <laughs> observational meditation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that hasn't been fun. Um, but okay, let's, uh, let's dive in. Like, um, Let's kind of uh, open up with one of the more pressing things that someone's had on their on their mind and whether it be a question or a discussion, uh, let's let's dive into something. Stephen, can you talk about this Bretton Woods article you sent us in the chat? I 
I want to dive deep. I have a lot of questions. I think I might need some contacts from you. Yeah. Yeah, it was a um just like a letter put out by uh apparently he's a relatively well known. I saw people referring to him as his first name, Zolt Zoltan. Um yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Zoltan wrote something. I'm like, I don't know, I've never heard of the guy. But Yeah, you don't you don't mess with him. You don't mess with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's from a movie, movie, right? Yeah, no, no, Zohan. You don't mess with the Zohan. Oh, so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, um, you guys know Bretton Woods, right? Like Bretton Woods one was the uh, the advent of basically the the destruction of the gold the gold standard in the nineteen seventies. Kind of like a pivotal moment in in history, right? You ever, you ever look at those? Uh, what the fuck happened in like 1971 that website oh my god or de- can we please link that in the in the show notes or something that website is awesome it's awesome to see yeah is, is that the year website. wtf happened in, in 1971 1971 right yeah wtf happened in 1971.com i actually think this is like this should be like required viewing for everybody who listens to this podcast or just it's it just exists in life generally right it's it's like it's super interesting. It, it's just all of these charts and they, they sort of relate to this, this, this seismic shift we had where we just basically told everybody that they couldn't redeem the dollar for gold anymore. And it was, it was over. We're going fiat. Right. And not, not to get into it too deeply, but like the very first one on the page is, is the growth in uh, productivity versus hourly compensation. Right. So how much do people produce versus like, what are they paid? And from 1948 to 1972, like these two lines are inseparable. It's like a super tight correlation. And then basically since 1971, the compensation line is completely flat. And the productivity line has gone up, right? And and this just shows you that like people in general are getting paid like way, like, like less than 50% of what they used to be paid per like unit of production that they have. And like we have all these, do you have any thoughts on that, by the way, like just that one in particular, because I, I think it's because you're getting compensated in sort of like shit dollars. Like you're getting compensated in like a shit fiat. So like, uh, that is the reason why you're not, you're not getting paid for your productivity anymore because the shit fiat is worth less as you get, as you go forward. Well, there's just something about the, the change, right. When we went to fiat that is basically enabled capital versus workers, right? We've sort of really put our foot down on the pedal of, okay, capital is going to now grow exponentially. Um, and then like the, the wages haven't kept up, kept up. They've either grown linear or stayed stagnant. Right. And this, I, this isn't all fiat in my mind, right? Like it, it is kind of stark how it happens there. It's a huge portion of it, but there's other things that have happened too, like globalization, for example, right? We didn't have like the same degree of like outsourcing to, to, to China in, in 1971 that we, we have right now. Right. So that puts like tremendous downward pressure on wages because like people, are producing the same, even even higher, but the pool of people who are now like producing stuff worldwide is obviously like much 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 larger, right? I think like all the the Bitcoiners and people on that particular camp are right. Like what happened in 1971? Oh, we went off the gold standard. We we embarked on this like new era of of, of fiat money, of the idea that the government can just 
literally create money out of out of thin air, right? It's a definition of of fiat, right? It's just it just exists because it is declared to to be so. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with. Are you guys familiar with the what is it the, the Cantillon effect? Is that what it's called? I'm not. Uh, the, I think it's called the Cantillon effect. It basically refers to the idea that, like, roughly summarizing it, the closer you are to the money printer, the wealthier you get, right? So. In 1971, we went off like the gold standard, right? And we invented this idea of just just printing money, right? But it turns out that like people are different degrees of separation from the money printer. We we really saw this in COVID, right? Like what did the, what did the, the the richest like 50 or 100 people in the world, right? What did they, they like double their wealth on average? Like these like multi billionaires, yep. they double their wealth in like a year. Why? Well, it's because they were the ones who were closest to like the free free grab bags of money come down like this at least this time they had the decency to like actually mail people actual checks like remember in the the 2008 crisis right like the world nuked and we basically just bailed out all the banks we sent people nothing and foreclosed on their homes right that was like and the banks are the closest of, to the money printer right yeah i think that's, it's no, yeah. no coincidence that like banks and all these people closest to bank like anything related to banks like 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 stocks assets right that's the big thing about 1971 is we shifted to this new paradigm where you got wealthy by owning assets instead of like producing stuff because assets just went up 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 like all this money that was created just went into assets and kept going into assets right and then we did this thing where we kept like lowering interest rates to keep like kind of foregoing these economic crashes and to tune the economy. But what did that do? It just made it easier to leverage and buy more assets. That liquidity just flowed into assets, right? And we, we just have this gap now where the people who are labor workers who don't own assets are just like flat or not doing anything. And all the, the, the capital, the people who own capital, people who own assets are, it's all going to the moon, right? So that's, that's what the fuck happened in, in 1971. That's like a frequent thing we talk about. But yeah, I, everybody should go to this site. Like, like some of these charts are, they're just like absolutely, they're, they're, they're absolutely nuts. Like they're I amazing. Even... I spent like, I spent like half a day on this chart, just like analyzing each and every one of them. Cause they're like each, each next one is more exciting. Than like the here, next, here's the a previous. super interesting one. Average black income as a percentage of average white income. Like we, we have this idea in our heads that like we've been like 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 black people have basically been held down since slavery and there's been like no progress. But like what's interesting is that if you look at like the time from, you know, the post-slavery era up until like 1970, yes, it's true that like th these people were very badly put upon and started from nothing. Right. But if you look at the growth of like wages, for example, you chart that. It's a straight line up. Again, this is this is black income versus white income. It's a straight line up. And then in 1970, it just goes flat. It just goes completely flat. Like well, we were making more progress with equality in like the in the 50s, like according to this chart, than we are today. Right. And are we supposed to believe to that, that we're more racist? Be, counterpoint to that would be like this shows exponential growth in the 1950s and early 60s. It's like civil rights movement. They're coming off a very low base. Like it's it's very easy to see like exponential growth coming off of a low base during the civil rights movement. Uh, like that is a counterpoint. No, this this start this starts in the early 1900s, right? It it actually flattens at the moment the civil rights movement happens. Like when was the Civil Rights Act? Like in the mid 1960s. 
late 1960s? Am I on mute? Like yeah. civil rights movement like started I got you. in like 64. But the actual yeah, Civil Rights Act was in 1964, right? So when the Civil Rights Act passed, like this line goes flat. And it's not related to the Civil Rights Act, right? Like obviously the Civil Rights Act didn't cause this to flatten. But something else happened at the time, right? And I, I think it's like interesting to... To, to dig into that like the, the the stats are the stats and it's interesting to talk about why i, I have no doubt that there are multiple confounding variables True. but like I it's, mean, it's just totally. like there's like a lot of interesting stuff here and i don't want i don't want to focus on this one too much but like uh the the chart does go up and to the right over time as you get closer and closer to 100 percent, meaning like uh, a black income is close to a white income like it it, it does get closer and closer to 100 percent, like meaning that they're at parity over time, you know, like, so it should, except they're nowhere near parity with us. Right. What are they like? Well, I guess you're, you're how, I don't know how white you are. I, I guess I'm the whitest person here. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't. You're say obviously that. the whitest person here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's still probably what, like 70%. It's still quite a bit, it's still quite a bit off. It's 70 and 75 according crazy. to the chart. It's, it's 75? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's on the chart that I'm I mean, looking at. That's many right, years. I, was, I mean, we're 2022. I'm, I'm guessing it's closer now. But the, no, the I'm, guessing it's worse. I'm guessing it's worse now. Actually, no, no. Yeah, no. I think it peaked in the Trump. I think it peaked in the Trump administration. Actually, you um, think it's worse recently. now than it was in 2018? Is what? what yes. Which is where this chart goes. Uh, it hasn't gone yeah, lower. So. Uh, mm-hmm. Doubt it. It's not, I feel like there's a lot of not, correlation. It's not important. Not, not necessarily causation. But yeah, it's, it's tough um, to pinpoint. And nor, nor does the the graph, like you know, put a point on what causes this and flattening. There's, and there's literally no uh, conversation on the website to suggest causation. It's just literally showing chart after chart after chart after chart, which is pretty cool. It's yeah, it's chart after chart after chart where there's like a massive deviation in exactly the year like 1971. You know, which is obviously That's- they're trying to call attention to something here. Um, right. So that's Bretton Woods one. Yes. So back to what we were talking about this article. So he's talking about um, the, this new Bretton Woods, which is sort of like a, it's like a full circle regression back, right? Because the original Bretton Woods is the idea that, oh, we're not going to have anything backing money. It's just worth something because we say so and we're really powerful. So that's what's going to happen. And then we kind of came out of the petrodollar system and all that, all that jazz, right? But what this Credit Suisse guy is saying in this note is that he's saying like that has now peaked and like the sort of weaponization of the dollar in the Russia crisis is basically like the final nail in the coffin for that. And like the dollar is never going to go back to what it was. Now there's going to be a move back the other direction towards commodity backed currencies and multiple, you know, currencies that, you know, we, we, we may see a world where like the Chinese start saying that, you know, that, well, the, the yuan is, it's backed by this like gigantic portfolio of, of gold and rare earth metals and all this stuff. Right. Um, it, it, because that's kind of what, that's like what Russia is doing now anyway. Right. Like they're, they're basically trying to hoard like real assets to kind of shelter from everything. Right. They're, they've been hoarding gold. They've been hoarding oil. They've been hoarding like all, all the, all this stuff. Um, it's this this movement away from, the dollar, right? And it, it, we may see other countries do the same, right? Like they've watched like what we will do. And I'm not saying what we did was wrong. It was 
almost certainly necessary, but it's going to be hard to, to undo that, right? We basically said that the dollar isn't this like open thing that anybody can use anymore. It's something that, you know, we can take away from you, you know, and, and there may be this move now to, to, to own things, to own currencies that, that can't be taken away from you. And that, and that may extend to, to Bitcoin. I mean, he mentions Bitcoin at the very end of this article, right? Like if Bitcoin can kind of like escape regulation, which I think is like a big if at this point, but, but if it can, um, that's going to be like a really, you know, interesting asset in this sort of like new paradigm where we're issuing like fiat, fiat dollars again. He, he leaves us with a cliffhanger at the end of the note. And he says, after this war is over, money in quotes will never be the same again. And Bitcoin in parentheses, if it still exists, then will probably benefit from all this, but he doesn't mention, you know, Bitcoin throughout the the rest of the letter. Um, and don't, I'm trying to remember back, like it, when you're talking about currencies that are backed by commodities or maybe a basket of currencies, I thought that's what Facebook's stable coin, or, or I guess current digital currency Libra, when it was first thought of was, was going to be, it was going to be this stable coin, this digital currency that was backed by a basket of, of currencies, including the U S dollar, but also euros, yen, sterling, Singapore dollar. And I wonder if it was going to include, um, but, but not commodities though, right? It was just supposed to be, correct. I could be wrong on this, but I think it was just a no, basket of you're currencies. Right. It was just a basket you, of currencies. So maybe this is like a good the, example. Or something. Yeah. Do you, do you remember, uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes? Yes. Keynesian economics. He, he, In he, high school. he was the guy, he was the guy who proposed the bank core, right? Which the protocol is actually named after now that I think about it. But that was supposed to be this like, um, that was like an, an alternative, I think, to the Bretton Woods thing. The idea that like we were going to have like this global reserve currency that was like actually backed by like this basket of like commodities. And that ended up just kind of falling by the wayside. And we chose, you know, we chose paper money. I mean, what's the realization of his idea here? Is it a a currency that's like backed by, say, gold and, and a, a basket of other commodities, if not only gold? That's what gold bugs say the end game is, right? Like the, the whole bull case for all the gold bugs is that like eventually all of these fiats are going to not necessarily go to zero, but there's going to be this time where everybody gets together and they're like, we have to just re-rate everything and to restore confidence. We're going to like partially back things by gold and then gold goes through the moon, right? Like you cut all the values of the currency by half and back them by gold, but then gold like two X's and then. I'm not sure I want that during my lifetime. That sounds painful. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I want that. It feels like we're going to get it or something. I I don't, I don't know. What do do you, what do you, what do you think, Eric? Have you, you thought about what future currency Armageddon looks like? Kind of, but like I, I, I almost like frame it differently. And I think like um, my frame is like going back to your old, your old mentor, Stephen is uh, Ray Dalio's framework. It's like, uh, it's, it's like debt cycle related, you know, like we have so much debt, like national debt, consumer debt, like both on just like a, a notional level. And as a, as percentage of GDP, like, um, what we're going to see soon is that like income is not catching up with expenses, you know, like, um, you know, like oil commodities, wheat, everything's going to get more expensive and wages are not catching up with that. So people don't have enough money to sort of keep pace. 
what you're also going to see is, um, I guess, just like collateral, meaning like you would take those those earnings, you would take those personal earnings or income and put them in assets. And you can use those assets as collateral to go borrow more. Like that that collateral is going to disappear. Like we're gonna we're gonna remove a lot of money from the system. And I think uh, your boy Dalio described this as a deleveraging. And what this looks like to me, I, I don't know where it ends up. Um, you know, maybe it is in like a new monetary regime. Uh, I don't think it is, but I just think we're just going to go through a lot of pain in the near term as we figure out what this looks like. Haven't we seen this like uh, problem and solution before in like the 70s and 80s when when inflation was like over 10%? Paul Volcker, rest in peace, he was the Fed president during the 70s and 80s. Not sure exactly what the timeline was, but I think Carter and then Reagan was the president in that era. And we had... Yeah. And again, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm assuming inflation over 10%. It was really high. And he, you know, Wild, yeah. the poor guy, his his like byline on his obituary is Paul Volcker, Fed chairman who waged war on inflation is dead at 92. Like he was known for basically yeah. breaking the back of inflation. And his simple solution was jack up interest rates. And he jacked up interest rates like close to 14%. Oh, and, really? and, and, and he was like- 30 year interest rate. I think it was above, it was above 30, 40%. Like I, I, feel like, I feel like short-term rates- yeah, like I think T bills at like sixteen or seventeen percent. Like if you could imagine that, like they're <laughs> basically zero now. Um, it was is nuts. But like you know why that can't really happen today, right? Do you, do do you understand like what's well, different well, back then? Well, for sure, our our debt to GDP is is significantly higher than it mm-hmm. was then. But like his purpose was to deleverage and stop the government from borrowing so much because he thought it's so critical to the health of our economy. And maybe the relative change in that is from 0% to 4%, which sounds atrocious and super painful now, but it would certainly get um, politicians to think a lot differently about the debt. And, you know, for as much as conservatives talk about being, you know, fiscally responsible, no matter what party's in power, they spend more. And if interest rates were that high and they were facing, you know, the ability of the US government to pay down its debt, Maybe it would add, actually bring it to the focus of of the conversation and and to the national narrative. I'm not sure, but you know, obviously that's the biggest difference. I think like our it would be like a significant portion of the of the federal budget would be just the interest payments on the federal well, I, debt. Yeah, I think I think like what else do you have? Like, I think at four percent, like we're paying like somebody fact check me on this. I'm pulling this out of my ass, but I think at like. No, I think we're like close to like a hundred, like not not a hundred, but like probably like sixty or seventy percent. I think of GDP is like going to interest service at this point. Like, isn't it already like like twenty or thirty percent? It's already like thirty percent right now, and rates are like like basically zero, right? Look, look that up, Jamie. yeah. So look that up, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> look that up. Um, the I mean, you're right. The difference is that uh, the government would go broke if if we raised um, interest rates that fast. But but what happens? We, we also weren't case? as leveraged back then, right? Like the system has so much leverage right now. Like the Fed is, I think, trying to do this thing where the, like everybody's playing a game of chicken with the Fed, where investors are like, "We know you can't raise rates, and it has to be QE infinity forever. <laughs> so we're just going to go ultra long all the risk." 
And then the Fed's trying to do this thing where they're like trying to demonstrate to markets that no, we can we can raise rates, we can do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll fucking do it. I'll pull the trigger, right? And it everybody seems to be pricing in, which is what makes me nervous. But the consensus now is that they're going to like do this fake out where they raise rates and pretend that they're going to tighten. But then the economy is going to basically contract really, really badly. And then they're going to sort of use that as an excuse just in time for the next election to take their foot off the brakes again and, and then re- redeploy liquidity in the system. And then we all you know go up only again. But that's kind of consensus, I think, which means it's probably not going to happen exactly that way. A lot of people now are saying that like the war has basically served as its own tightening. Like people think that, oh, the war has caused tightening, the gas prices going up, energy prices going up, people are spending less, inflation is going to come out of the system naturally. Maybe they're going to use this as an excuse to to not cut. And maybe like we actually see like a... A, like a at least temporary like risk on spike again like after the after the next meeting like that's kind of like the bull case for crypto at least short term um i don't know what that looks like six months from now um but yeah it's i i don't know i don't i don't know what's gonna happen i don't think anybody knows what's gonna happen right so i just i just, just like, looked it up uh i just looked this yeah. up um interest payments as a percentage of tax revenue meaning like the income that the the government generates it's fifteen percent in twenty twenty, and that's Oof. when that's when interest payments were <laughs> zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> so that was already fifteen percent of the tax revenue being paid out as interest alone. Uh, imagine trying to hike the interest rate. Uh, you know, like it. What quickly happens to uh, yeah? yeah you'd your be at like a hundred percent. Very quickly. Like a hundred percent of GDP going to pay interest. Like it's it's sort of like the definition of a Ponzi scheme, right? They're it's trying the to like Ponzi of all time. juice the economy so that we generate more revenue and GDP growth so that we can tax it and then like use that like economic growth to kind of pay down the interest. And they're trying to just do this perpetually forever. And their 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 plan is to sort of land the plane, like crash land the plane softly, right? Where they like if they can, they, they, they think that they can carry this out for like one or two decades and slowly inflate away the, the, the debt, right? That's their, mm-hmm. their idea of trying to find that Goldilocks. But like, like if history is any indication, they're just like never able to, they're never able to do that. There's like, always so what's a, your always solution knowing like if you can like see the future, which, uh, I think the four of us are like seeing this thing play out in advance. Like what, how are you playing it? Uh, today you you have to own a variety of stuff right like you have to I, I think like real estate is great right because it's like this like especially if it's real estate like along the coast or something where you can't make any more of it like no matter how much money they print like if they keep printing well the value of your house just goes up because you just can't create more of that house like if you live in coastal san diego that's like it. That's that's just like nobody's going to make more of that house, right? So you're sort of protected in that way, right? But you also in an environment where they keep trying to drive rates lower, that helps you too because the lower rates go, the higher home values go up because people can like afford a larger and larger monthly payment. They borrow more, they lever more, you know, and number go up, right? I also think that like like energy stocks, like you know, energy stocks that that, that generate like actual revenues, probably like good in this type of environment, especially like a stagflationary environment. I think it's known that you want to own 
like energy stocks, that sort of thing. Um, like growth, like tech stocks suck if you go stagflation. Stagflation is like the nightmare scenario, right? Stagflation is like right. when you have inflation, but there's also like no growth. Like at least before we had like super high inflation, but the economy was also on like a heater. So you can kind of get yourself out of it. Like stagflation is like a nightmare. Like gas goes to $7 and then like people aren't making more money. The economy is not really chugging along. And that's like kind of what we had in the the seventies, right? That was a, that was a real nightmare scenario. And, and like what Volcker did at the time was like wildly unpopular in the moment. Like it caused like a lot of temporary pain. And I, I don't even think like politicians like have the balls to do what he did ever again. Like yeah, everybody is just like so self-serving. Like, what can I do to get elected tomorrow? What can I get do? Like, it's that's how everything runs, right? And when you play those incentives forward, it's hard to envision a scenario where we go the austerity route. It's just like it everybody, guy, I think, is going to want to just keep kicking the can. To fall on a sword, like who's who's going to be willing to do that for the betterment of of our society? There's a um, term I'm trying to understand better. Maybe we talk about it real quick. Like the the phrase monetizing the debt or debt monetization. So people say like if interest rates got up to like two four percent, the government wouldn't be able to pay the interest on its debt, and therefore we go into monetizing the debt. And as far as I understand it, what it means to me is that essentially we're borrowing money from the Federal Reserve, the central bank, to finance spending. Um, but isn't that what we're doing already? Or is this definition specifically borrowing more money from the central bank in order to pay the interest on the debt that we already have? Because people have talked about monetizing the debt as like this really worst case scenario. But when I kind of read it and, and study up on it, it seems like we're it feels we're like we're right, doing that we're doing already. it right now. Like, isn't isn't monetizing yeah. the debt the strategy via which you just sort of perpetually increase the money supply and <laughs> you, you basically try to hold you try to hold real rates like at a at a level that's different than your borrow rate, such that like you're borrowing at a 05 percent, but the real rate is two percent, which means that every year you're inflating away your debt one and a half percent. Right. That's that sort of like Goldilocks zone I was talking about, where they want to try to find a place where they can keep inflation at this like high, you know, maybe like three or four percent, but manageable rate where they can sort of aggressively monetize the debt by keeping rates low, inflation high. And if they think they can chunk down the debt by like three or four percent a year in real terms and then do that for like the better part of a decade or two, then they think they can get back to this level where they can raise rates again. Right. The, the, the debt to GDP ratio is too high right now to do this aggressive, like raise rates policy. Right. They don't have the cushion. Right. If your debt to GDP is like 10 percent, you've got all of this leeway to jack up rates to kind of, you know, halt the economy and bring things under control or halt inflation, and bring things under control. Right. But like like we said earlier, when your debt to GDP is like 50 percent. Well, you do two, three X, four X rates, you know, they're talking about like nine rate, rate hikes this year. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. That seems like is, insane is, to me. Like, is the fuss around monetizing the debt essentially that you could end up in a spiral inflation scenario where you're printing money to pay off the interest and inflation runs out of control and the money yes. is, is more worthless yes. than it is today? Okay. So that's why yes. there's so much like fuss about we could end up monetizing the debt. It seems like that we're doing that already. I think one interesting thing that exists now is, and you mentioned the political angle, is that 
Janet Yellen, the the previous Fed president, is now the uh, Treasury Secretary. So there's this kind of obviously direct line between the executive branch and the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So I wonder if there's a little more back and forth. I mean, I'm sure there's always been political pressure that's existed uh, between you know the executive branch and the and the Federal Reserve, um, but maybe more more so now. And something I, I brought up, you know, before we started recording was. I'm really curious to see how um, inflation, the inflation print affects the politics coming up in the midterm. So we have midterm elections coming up in November. Um, and now we have this, you know, kind of disgusting Ukraine, uh, Russia crisis going on. And we have like a, from a political angle, at least a scapegoat for inflation. And I'm kind of just wondering you know, the Democrats going to use this to say, well, this is why we have inflation. And it's particularly, you know, probably pretty prudent for them to do that and somewhat relevant because when you look at the previous inflation prints, I think the number one and number two thing was energy, specifically like, you know, uh, oil prices and, and the cost of gasoline. It was also housing, you know, your rent and, and, and housing prices. And then food was like the, the top three that people were feeling at, at home. And energy is going to be the breakout in the next inflation print for sure. And they're going to be able to point to this, uh, you know, war that started as as the cause of that. When just two weeks ago, the the main reason we were talking about this was monetary and fiscal policy. The Fed, you know, being too slow to raise rates and also fiscal policy to print more money and approve more more spending bills when it wasn't necessarily. When it wasn't necessary, I guess, at the point in which they approved the spending bill. So I feel like the Democrats are going to get a somewhat of a free pass here. Um, and they were already kind of uh, talking about it, you know, even a week before the invasion started. And they're certainly going to run with it now. Does that mean they're going to get the shellacking or, or not? I'm curious what you guys think if, Dude, you know, okay, and, and so, curious how you feel personally about it. Like, do you think? Okay, so, so personally, I think, I think it's, you're right that that is an out, but I don't like to label it as partisan because we've been running deficits in, in like the federal budget for multiple administrations on both sides. Like we, we've gotten ourselves into this position on like as a Democrat and Republican president, whatever, like to say that, are the Dems going to get a free out by saying like this inflation is just uh, because of war? It's like, I think that's like not very purple. Um, I think like, would anybody in power use this as a free out? I think absolutely. Absolutely. You would say, of course, like, oh yeah, inflation's high because uh, Russia, we can't import the oil anymore. Even though energy, it only makes up 3% of the CPI index. So like it, it actually isn't the driver. It's just the fact that like we want to blame it on something else. Like I just I just want to like reframe it to say that it's not like a Dems well, situation. Well, also I'll point to to one the the American Rescue Plan Act. Like his first bill that he signed, I think was that COVID rescue plan. When arguably he didn't need to do anything, he just had to let the economy like recover. And there wasn't really. I mean, we went from talking billions to hundreds of billions. And we were like throwing around trillions of dollars. I mean, he, you know, Trump did the same thing, you know, in the middle of the crisis, printed multiple trillions of dollars. I mean, that was a bipartisan action. So agreed there, but he also took this extra step 
once he took office to pin, print another two trillion. Um, and I think he it included another stimulus payment, which I think at the time it came, all of us were like, and granted, just, we're in a little let me just bubble stop on our own. I, I think like what what I'm seeing in this Ponzi, as Stephen accurately described it, is that like it's not a Dem or Republican thing. It's like the next guy is going to print more than the fucking next guy is going to print more than the next guy. And like, that's the incentive at play. You know, maybe there's going to be some break in the chain where one guy doesn't like print more than, than the predecessor, but like, that's, that's like our incentive system is designed to work this way as it currently stands. So like, I don't think it's necessarily like a partisan issue. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Like I, I, I don't think there's like left and right on spending anymore. Like everybody spends Trump spent like a, like an animal Obama spent like crazy Bush spent like crazy. Like the last guy who didn't spend was like Clinton, right? Like, <laughs> and, he, and he was dim, but like now everybody spends and everybody's going to continue to spend. And that's because like, it's not so much like a left right thing anymore. It's that like populism has really taken hold in both parties. Like Trump was a populist thing and like the heart and soul of the Democrat party, which is not Biden is is populist i think the next election is going to be like extremely populist in nature there's no populist who's going to take office and then like implement austerity measures right it's just like it's just not going to happen so the spending thing is sort of like a thing i think that you can just bet the farm on no matter who wins right eric you're exactly right that like if there was a republican in the house right now like they'd obviously be blaming Russia for the inflation, like, of course, that would be happening. Um, are the American people going to buy it? No. Like, I, I think Biden's like, I, I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think. But like, I don't think there's ever been a p president, like, including Carter, who is in like a more of a position to get completely shellacked in the, the midterms than Biden <laughs> right now. I mean, this is just like, objectively speaking, like the worst, I, like, one of the worst presidencies that's ever existed for the first like year or two. And it's, it's not just like the fact that all this shit has gone wrong. It's that, like so much of it was like a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head that didn't need to be there. And he somehow managed to just fail everybody. Even the people in his own party aren't happy with him. Like everybody on the left was like very pissed off at Biden. Independents are pissed off at Biden. Conservatives are pissed off at Biden. The only people who like Biden is this like weird kind of boomer moderate subset of like the democratic base who just is like, I don't even know what world they live in. Right. But like, like his, he's like sub 30 approval rating now. It's like unbelievable. And that was like pre war breaking out and pre $7 gas. Like he's just, his, his ratings they're just going to zero. They're going to get like shit coin charge well, just straight, straight to zero. It's, it's funny. You, you compared him to Carter. Cause as you were, uh, talking about comparing to Carter. I was looking up Carter and then I was like, but who came after Carter? Reagan. And Reagan was known for cutting discretionary spending. So I started Googling this while you were talking about that. And he did cut domestic discretionary spending. He also cut taxes and increased military spending, which contributed to a tripling of the federal debt. So, you know, you <laughs> might get like a, someone opposite in place. And to Eric's point, the guy who came in and was known for, you know, cutting domestic discretionary spending. By the way, you should go look back at some of Reagan's debates. There's some clips on YouTube. And the guy was so specific and numbers focused in some of the things where the, the government was spending his money. It was one of the I think one of the only presidential debates or speeches I've seen where a president is actually citing numbers in the budget and like, get rid of that. 
you know, don't need that. And actually talking about the effectiveness of some of the programs and how much we spent per, you know, productive uh, dollar in, in the program. But anyway, um, yeah. So to your point, even Reagan tripled. That brings debt. up a good point because I, actually, like, if I'm looking at the macroeconomic situation, what I, what I actually feel like is going to happen is we're going to have like this massive pain point where like all risk assets bleed out. But then I think we're going to have like this euphoric bull run again as like the Fed lowers rates to zero because they have fucking have to. And it, it gets to be like party on again. You might be right. Happen, right? <laughs> what, what if no one cares that that people that we're going to monetize the debt? Let's say like Eric in the discord, you mentioned this kind of reminds me of the 2018 uh taper tantrum when the Federal Reserve started to taper quanti- quantitative easing, started bumping up interest rates, market freaked out, Fed cooled down off in- raising interest rates, eventually decreased them again. And what if we go to this modern monetary theory that like people, I hope we don't, but let's just say that, you know, general populace says, well, I think we've proven that the government can just print more money and it, and and it's okay. Um and we go back risk on, and it's like this this scary thing of like, I don't know, playing uh, playing chicken with with inflation and and the the currency. Like, you got to rush to continue to own assets, and if you're not owning assets, if you're earning hourly, not owning assets, you know, well, is it is it is it like a fair to say that this is sort of like the bargain right now that's being thrown out, like with the policy, all this stuff that's being proposed, and how everything's being run? It's sort of like seems to me. Like people are saying, "Hey, we're 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 gonna print more money." <laughs> Doing my Biden impression now. God, I should not do that. Four trillion dollars. No, they're gonna just like keep printing money, and they're gonna say to all the people who own stuff, right? You're gonna get really rich, and we know that this is gonna like fuck over all the middle class and poor people because they're, we're just gonna inflate them away. So what we're going to ask you to do is let us do like wealth taxes and all this stuff where we like we get you rich, but then we claw back that money and then we kind of like UBI it back to people. And in doing that, we're going to find this magic Goldilocks thing where we make everybody rich, but then we take their money and then the government like funnels it all back to the people who they like inflated away all their stuff. And then everybody's happy. Like you get to keep a little money in your stock portfolio and all the all the peasants get to like, you know, buy bread. Right. It seems seems like that's like kind of the gist of what's being proposed. And it, it, it does seem a little messed up. Like there should be like a better way to run the system. As opposed to like you have this like horrible like it's just like totally off kilter and you're like okay like yeah I know this is totally fucked up we're gonna do it and we're gonna just like wildly make you rich we're gonna take your money and we're gonna put it over here and then somehow in the end everybody ends up feeling good is it it fair to say that that's like kind of what's happening yeah I think that's it I I think that's right yeah so the Fed the Fed is backward looking right they're they're looking at data as it comes in and then they're they're like defining policy based on that data that is historic. So like inflation data that they get, they're going to like make policy decisions based on that. What they want to do is make sure that inflation is going down. It'll go down because we're going to a recession, I'm pretty sure. So like inflation is going to go down just on the fact that like people aren't going to have any money to spend and prices are going to go lower. Okay. I think like GDP is going to, everything's going to go lower. We're going to recession. So the Fed is going to go back to who they have been their entire history, which is like this stimulative type of uh, 
fed. They want to like bolster growth. That's what we're going to go back to. So I, I'm, I'm bullish on, on growth sort of like extending beyond, you know, like this, this bear market. Um, man, I, I do think, I do think that, uh, what I tell people that are like outside of our crypto sphere, right? So like we're, we're in this like ETH Bitcoin type thing. Like not everyone's in this thing. What I tell people who are like old school, they're like, Hey, we want to own the S and P 500. I want to own real estate. It's like the thing that I say over and over again, is like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you own. Just own assets for God's sake, just own assets. <laughs> And you're going to fucking make it because that's all that matters. Like everything is going to win as long as you own assets. It's going to win to different levels, but assets are going to win. Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and like, like, like you said, like owning assets is great. Owning scarce assets is even better. That's why like commodities are going through the roof right now. Because they're physical things people need and we can't make more of them in the short run, right? It's a little more complicated, right? Because when you're talking about commodities, you've got futures contracts and the price of oil this month is way more expensive than the price of oil a year from now. Because when you talk about commodities, like you have this thing where like the market can produce more of them when the price goes up. And that's, that's like why the beachfront real estate is really interesting because the market can't produce more of it, at least not in... California, right? You could argue there's beachfront real estate elsewhere in the in the world, so it's not like a super scarce asset, but it's it's pretty damn scarce. But that that's probably also a good pitch for for Bitcoin to your people, right? right. Like Bitcoin is like it's like digital, it's like digital um, beachfront real estate. It's this thing that you, you you literally cannot produce more of, like mathematically. It's just mathematically encoded scarcity. There can't be any more of it. But also, it's like highly liquid. It's infinitely transferable. You can shelter wealth in it. You can take it anywhere you want in your head. It's got all these other interesting properties. So in that type of world, it's it it's probably going to do good. Right, but it what? takes uh, it takes belief because the price action does not reflect that narrative at all uh you know like you would look at beachfront in the real short estate run. yeah you'd look at beachfront real estate exactly and that's fucking skyrocketing and you look at other scarce assets skyrocketing you look at bitcoin it's fucking down in the dumps that's where you're like well, i mean lows. to piggyback off that like what are people um scared about now scared to touch right now because i believe march might be the two-year anniversary of when you actually would get paid to uh take a barrel of oil the cost of oil went negative <laughs> briefly for like a week because there was so much oil yeah. no one was consuming it because everyone was at home this is a two-year anniversary um no one was consuming oil no one was driving no one was flying uh we had production at like a, a peak specifically in the u.s and uh yeah people who owned uh oil futures and oil contracts we're paying people to buy it off them. Um, so the question- Literally because think, storage costs exceeded, like yeah. exceeded delivery. Uh, exactly. I think at the time I was like joking around that like there was some hedge fund trader who made a trade and was like, oh my God, we can't fit, you know, a container full or a, a you know, ship container full of oil barrels in our hedge fund office. I need to pay, <laughs> just get this off. Cause that might've been a, a reality at some point. Um, so what are people scared of, scared to touch now? That's, that's 
included in your uh, viewpoint, Eric, of like, it's an asset, but what are people scared to touch? Uh, I don't have an answer Facebook? for that exact question, but what I do have <laughs> is like a, a, a view, a perspective on oil itself, which I think is important. So like the highest price that oil has ever been in our lifetime, maybe ever, is $147 per barrel. And that was in 2008. Okay. Um, so we're, we're under that today, but the money supply has increased substantially since 2008. So hmm. like oil is priced in dollar terms and dollars have devalued. So what does that equal today? It's, it's actually kind of close to like $250 a barrel on, on today's dollar value. So like we're feeling the pain now at the pump and like, you know, we're going to feel it worse if it goes to 150, 175, like, but imagine it goes to $250 a barrel. Imagine your price at the, at the pump goes to $10 a gallon or something. Like you're not going to do the same things you used to do. We're like, I'm so certain we're going into a recession uh, and, and that the fed is going to tighten based on that. And like, it's going to get so ugly in risk assets. Um, uh, yeah, I, I basically don't have any other point outside that, of like, that. That reminds me. Can we can we talk about how terrible like the Western world's energy policy is? Yeah. So yes. I, had, I had a I had a question. I was like speaking about yeah. you know Biden's news as well of you know officially banning Russian energy and oil and this idea of like where oil is at. Do you guys know much in general about nuclear energy? Have you, has anyone done a deep dive on it and has your opinion changed on it over the last few years? Because the people that I really admire and trust seem to have changed their opinion on it. I'm curious if you guys have dove into this because we have to figure yeah. this out. Like I've been a nuclear Western bull world for a long time. So I don't know if you're going to get a changed perspective from me. I think I hated nu- nuclear in my like 19 year old, like socialist phase or something, but yeah, same <laughs> we, when we all had that phase, but like in general, the like consensus and the gist of what I've gathered over the last few years is like a lot of the um, issues are overblown and exaggerated. So I want, I want Nick to give sort of the long winded answer because my answer is just about the stocks that can benefit if nuclear gets more widely adopted. Cause I've actually been asking myself the same question and I, I have that answer, but that's pretty <laughs> much got. all I have. No, give no, it, no, you give go, the stocks you go first. No, no give the I have a long, give the I want to know. First. I want to okay, know too. So, okay. So there's, there's basically on like only two plays in this realm. One is a uh, ticker symbol CCJ. It's uh, a Canadian, a Canadians uh, based business that, um, mines uranium but also sells nuclear reactors and then every other play is like uh you can't touch it it's like kazakhstan based like like ccj is the one so uh maybe way out of the money options go along Ooh, i like that that sounds like mm. a fun bet i yeah, hasn't, uh, i wrote hasn't down uranium not work moved a lot oh, actually like didn't didn't nickel like double wait is it is it back no, up again? is it up nickel nickel like a thousand nickel's up like 130 percent like one one day instantly but when i checked uranium it was only up like five percent or something i don't know if that's changed now but the market doesn't seem to think that we're gonna build nuclear plants any anytime soon the, the one area we did talk about a little bit in the office about, about nuclear was uh, taking a look at what it takes to invest in nuclear. And 
it looks like the timeline for a build out of a nuclear plant is something like 20 to 30 years. So we're talking about decades. And when you think about investors in the private market, like think about yourselves investing in a nuclear plant. Like what investor wants to wait 30 years before they see any type of return with with you know, ambiguity of what the regulatory market will look like in 20 to 30 years, let alone 10 years. So this is one area where I think uh, the the private market has a tough time solving uh, this, this solution. It might, um, or this problem, and it might take like a coordinated government effort to maybe subsidize or at least plan like a directive where we have subsidies so we can attract private investment um, into these things uh, in order to to get them built out. The second thing is that maybe there's a technological advancement that has been made in the construction of nuclear plants where they don't take 20 to 30 years. And that would be exciting uh, because then you would see the the payoff maybe shorten. Um, and that that would be that would be interesting. There's also the uh, uh, kind of like a local politics play is that everyone wants uh, cheap free or cheap to free nuclear energy but no one wants a, a nuclear plant in their backyard. Like what are, is a nuclear plant going to do to your home values if you got one in the backyard? And we have one here in Southern California. I don't think it's active anymore, um, but that's something to, to play as well. Like if you're going to have a kind of coordinated federal effort to build nuclear plants, um, you know, how do you choose where these things go? And do you maybe, uh, subsidize people who live there in some some fashion how do you give them tax credits like i believe if you live in saudi arabia you don't pay taxes you you know you 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 live off the 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 fruits of the land and so maybe there's something similar where if you live in some kind of vicinity of a of a nuclear plant you know you're gonna have to have some issues there so i think nuclear is obviously getting a lot more play um and towards steven's question originally you know germany for one, has gone down this path of turning off their nuclear reactors and um, has made a big shift into sustainable energy without realizing that, you know, they're going to, they're kind of, well, they got their balls in a vice by, by Russia in terms of uh, where their energy comes from. And we sent uh, a video in, in our thread. It was a Donald Trump United Nations address. And while a lot of what he says, you know, the, the style of which we don't agree with, you know, he did make one point that, uh, you know, Germany, it's it's not smart for you to have all of your energy uh, being produced by Russia. And if you guys want to look up the the clip, there's actually a, a video of it. The Russian delegation, there's like five or six diplomats in the crowd while Trump's speaking, and they literally just start busting up laughing at him uh, as a joke, like. You don't know. What I thought you're the Germans about. were. I thought the Germans were laughing at him. Oh, is that what? Uh, I, that's what yeah. I meant. Sorry, the German yeah. delegation started laughing at Trump at his comment. Discord, not, actually, not yeah. aging well. Yeah, not aging well at all. Specifically this week. So, anyway, uh, that's what I've kind yeah. of researched so far. In nuclear. That's all I got thus far. I don't. Yeah, know I mean, nuclear is a. It's like the essence of like. It's the essence of like a public good, right? Like we all think government has a useful function in delivering public goods like i don't have a problem with government building nuclear plants it seems like it seems useful i think i think i think the larger issue at play here is like this, this seems like a teachable moment i think because people are 
I think everybody here agrees that like 30 years, 40 years from now, like we want to be like running the whole world on renewables, right? We don't want to be burning fossil fuels. There's nothing like good about that in, in the long run, right? But I think very often people like just don't understand like this like nuance of like, okay, like we want to be there, but that doesn't mean you can just flip a switch and like the whole world just turns renewable like tomorrow, right? Like I think like, you know, Greta was like yelling at everybody for years, you know, and just how daring you. And like, we just like, of course we should go to solar. We should go to wind. Of course we should like develop, deploy all these technologies. That doesn't mean in the short run that our demand for like oil just like goes off like a switch, right? Like you, you, you saw this with, with, with like Keystone, right? We, we shut down that pipeline and environmentalists like for like oh that's like a victory like we're not gonna like harm the environment and use more oil but like the reality of the situation is like the demand for oil didn't change right so we're still buying the oil well now it's just coming from somewhere else and it turns out like well we're buying a lot of it from russia and does russia care about the environment do they produce oil in some sort of like sustainable way no like of, of course not they don't they don't they don't give a shit right so I think we, we have to be better at like kind of towing this line where like, yes, we want to go here, but we also have to understand like the trade-offs of going there too quickly. We have to have like better off-ramps for ourselves. We can't get into situations like this where like there's this like dictator that has the entire Western world like by the balls, right? We're, we're, we've been afraid to issue sanctions because we don't want people's gas price going up too much. But that's just like silly. Why is everybody dependent on Russia for freaking gas. It, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Like we, we like kind of, we like get out over our skis a little bit. I think the environmentalists went like a little bit too far in this instance. Uh, Europe, especially like they killed too much. Like Europe, like, look, like obviously the proof is in the pudding with prices, right? Like in today's day and age, like Europe cannot produce enough energy from renewable sources to be self-sustaining and to not rely on Russian gas and oil. And now we're kind of like seeing like the results of that. Like there are these kind of like second and third order consequences besides like, oh my God, we're, we're, we're burning carbon. And yes, we don't want to do that, but we also don't want an evil dictator running rampant, like kind of taking over vast swaths of Europe and bombing like innocent women and children, right? Like these things are complicated and people I think need to, you know, take a, take a step back before they kind of like oversimplify stuff. And it's just like, all fossil fuels bad. Get rid of them all tomorrow. World better place. Like, yeah, you know, not. <laughs> I mean, not it, not quite. To to your point, I think Elon Musk had a tweet recently, like uh, maybe four or five days ago, where he basically said, like, hate to say it, but like we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Like, you know, Elon Musk, whose you know goal in life is creating a sustainable planet, and you know his his ventures with Tesla are all about you know moving away from from you know carbon output is saying that extreme times demand extraordinary measures and that we need to increase it the problem is is that you know you can't just turn back oil production online i think on cnbc today the occidental petroleum ceo i forget her name but she she was basically saying we can't just increase oil production to meet the demand like we have labor shortages we have raw material shortages on our on our 
in our own business. And we can't just turn it, turn it back on to our pre-pandemic peak. So there, there is this kind of lagging um, effect that, you know, we're feeling now. And like you said, it's proof is in the pudding of the, of the price. Um, I think he, and Elon Musk also was tweeting about, you know, nuclear Armand in this case. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully I found it. Hopefully it's now extremely obvious that Europe should restart dormant nuclear power stations and increase power output out of existing ones. This is critical to national international security. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've been wondering how much of our, you know, nuclear is dormant as well. And like, how, how long, if it takes 20, 30 years to produce one from scratch and, and the infrastructure required, what it takes to, to bring back to life a dormant one. But, um, you know, back to this oil question and Biden and the decision he made and to Stephen's point about over, you know, people and all of us politicians oversimplifying this reactive approach to, well, yeah, we want sustainable. So that's what we got to do. So we immediately need to move away from this stuff. And when we're overly reactive like that. Now we're in this situation as you described it. And all of a sudden, you know, we're left with the decision of like, so do we go to Venezuela, Iran to get our oil now? Wrong. Like, I mean, that's, <laughs> it's just, you know, no, you play the same like, game what, all over again, dude. Like, what we're you're doing, doing in the, the background same- now, like while we are fighting Russia or like supporting a fight against Russia, we are simultaneously right now negotiating right. with Iran and like leveraging Russia to like help us in the negotiations because we need wild. the oil. It's like so wild. wild and like totally fucked, right? Like how can these two things be, how can this be happening at the same time? Like it's like people look at this and they're just like the whole world. That shows the lack scam. of leverage and, and on, honestly, like truly understanding the game we're playing shows you that you don't know your, your allies or your enemies. You really this, uh, it's all this time makes me think about uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. You know, they kind of always talked about, you know, oil and national security together. And, you know, maybe in a post postmortem, you know, kind of use that as a reason for invading Iraq. And I'm wondering, like, was that part of the decision to invade Iraq? You know, obviously it wasn't weapons of mass destruction. Was it one cleaning up his, uh, you know, dad's. Uh, unfinished business, George H.W. Bush business, was it, or was this like, uh, you know, long-term plan to secure oil for the country? And that was a reason, what was their vision that we would kind of, you know, oversee production in Iraq of, of oil and secure some kind of a national security interest with it? I don't know. It, it's crossed my mind over the last week now that, you know, oil and national security is obviously top of minds and people are relating the two now where I don't think that's been much of discussion in the last 10 years or so, because it hasn't been, you know, this much of a pressing need. I mean, can we look at what like a no win situation this is for Biden? This is like the essence of politics, right? Because going into it, like, like a week ago, all the Republicans were like, or maybe like three days ago, all the Republicans were like, I can't believe you're not sanctioning oil. You're, you're you're letting him do all this. You're not even cutting off their thing. But now he does it, and now it's just going to be a pivot to, oh, my God, look how high gas prices are. I can't believe – like, <laughs> it's just so disheartening to watch because it's such like a – it's such a charade. And it's, like, really hard to 
parse out what the heck like the signal is from the noise and all of this right it's like all of the stuff we see on politics and all the stuff like the media is feeding us like so much of it is just like it's just like smoke and mirrors like i, I understand why people just like throw their hands up and they're like man it's it's so confusing because you look at the crypto markets and guys while we've been recording bitcoin Uh-oh. has had like an eight percent pump while we've been recording Oh shit! Jesus, <laughs> what happened? It's so so funny. Like you get this, uh, you know, looming executive order from from Biden about the review of cryptocurrencies, and you know, speaking of noise and signal, <clears throat> Bitcoin just just pumps eight uh, percent when we just started talking about a looming cryptocurrency executive order to review regulations in every single government. Agency. It's almost like news doesn't really matter. It's almost like it's all just a, just a meme and it's all noise, which which it is for the most part with most news. Yeah, Should we talk a little bit about little, this little pump there? This like looming executive order. It it so kind of seems executive order is just like an order to look into it, right? Is yeah, like what you... me as president, I order you know SEC, the Secretary of State, you know CFTC, all the government agencies. I need you to look into this and figure out where it ought, where where we should sit. It's not like I, I will say it's it's got some leading questions in it. It's not like please find where the opportunities lie in cryptocurrency yeah, and yeah. how we can use it to like. You know, gain a a competitive advantage in the global economy. It's please find out whether um, you know, uh, secret, you know, for the State Department to find out if countries can use this for illicit means and avoiding sanctions. You know, please find out if this can be used for money laundering and other illicit actions. There is a little something about you know the Federal Reserve should decide if um, central bank digital currencies are, are a good idea. So it seems somewhat neutral, but with some with some leading questions. And Eric made the point earlier that, like, well, hell, at least they're, you know, asking some questions um, and kind of going down uh, this path rather than enacting some ignorant regulation. Yeah, man. Well, we'll we'll see what we'll see what comes about. But God, I, I'm I'm so excited. Just that, like, they're doing some due diligence here. You can, can you guys, like, please just agree with me? It's like, it's unbelievable that, like, we've gotten to a place in crypto where it's like they'll actually, like, bend an ear. They'll, they'll literally just, like, listen first rather than just, like, smacking you first. And, like, that, that alone is already such a big win. And, and to me, it's like, oh, man, it, it just feels so good. It feels so good that, like, now they're even taking it seriously. What if this is just the slow moving cogs of government and it's actually not just listening, it's just what government does before they enact legislation, move super slow, produce a ton of reports, and then you know, they just do whatever's politically relevant and advantageous at the time when it comes into making a decision. But yeah, I think we can be hopeful that it's somewhat listening and and not stalling on the issue. Yeah, Probably gonna I mean- wait to see what cryptocurrency has on the midterms if people actually vote based on it there's a few candidates i think running on like a crypto only platform and they're probably gonna wait and see what people do so get your pitchforks and and voting registrations ready i guess armand what were you gonna say i cut you off 
No, I mean, I, I understand where Eric is coming from. Um, I get it. Like it is, uh, it is promising in the sense that it wasn't just a smack and it wasn't just a, a straight move toward regulation. But I also completely understand what Nick is saying. I think you described what the political machine looks like <laughs> way too well. Um, it's it's unfortunate. Like that's that's the that's the honest answer, but like, that's also what the cynic in me believes about politics as a whole, that it's like, okay, let's just like get the information. We can't move because we're the government. It takes so much manpower to produce the most simple thing that like in the private enterprise world would just be like done in one week. And then with that information, we'll like basically use it to our advantage or uh, as a chip against somebody else when the time comes, which is really sad and unfortunate, but what, I hope to Eric's point is that it it didn't come off to me like there was a listening ear. It came off to me like there was a at least a desire for like um, a pursuit to find the information. What I hope for is that they pursue that with integrity and objectivity rather than like a predetermined notion of like what we want to find. That was what concerned me about what I read. It was like, okay, you're telling us what you want to go find and what your report is going to address, but what lens are you going to approach that with like a scientist or a politician? And unfortunately we, we kind of know what politicians do. They don't approach things like science. So, you know, fingers crossed. And, and ultimately, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, you, you alluded to this as well, Nick, it's like, there was the mention of like, Hey, let's look at like what Russia's doing what China's doing with their central bank digital currency. And I, I think I mentioned this either separately or on the last podcast, but like I listened to Pomp's recent eight minute episode, uh, which I recommend people check out. I'll drop it in the discord um, going through the dangers of uh, a central bank uh, digital currency and how it can be used against its citizens and how dangerous it is and the slippery slope involved and how, quickly things can escalate toward a situation like the one we have in China and how what you buy and what you have access to and who you have access to can be controlled by the ultimate centralized entity, the government. So it's like, it's like the equivalent of buying a, a Bitcoin on Coinbase and having it shut down, but worse because like it's like you can you you know we're going to control how you use it you can use it toward this i mean the example pomp made was really funny he was like if the government decides that being fat is a bad thing or being skinny is a bad thing they'll be like okay you we're going to limit you from buying these foods <laughs> sounds ridiculous but i mean we're seeing it play out in many ways in 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 these places that have that level of control and we've talked about this on the podcast many times control is a one way one way road power is a one-way road. You don't accumulate power and control in order to be like, okay, I feel like we have enough now. Um, things are under control. We're going to give you this these rights back. So we have to yeah, be very I careful mean, with these issues. I, I, j- just as an example to your point, I believe the, the nominee for the, I forget the term, the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, she had some pretty hot takes about um, when it comes to quantitative easing and using uh, monetary policy to um, punish or, I guess, exclude um, oil companies from uh, some of these like monetary actions. And so when the government has the opportunity to take control and point it 
you know, monetary policy, which should be neutral, um, they they will take the opportunity. And we see this with, you know, Biden uh, nominating uh, a vice chairman uh, nominee who is explicitly said, like, we don't want to support the oil industry. And so mon- that should be part of a, a monetary policy. So, you know, that's just one inkling of what we might see when, uh, you know, there's a central bank digital currency and what control they may, you know, exert over it. I think we really missed the boat when Facebook's like Libra was a project. I kind of liked it. It had this like backing of like 30 other co- uh, companies that were involved in the the pay- payments value chain. They were going to back it, partially back it by a basket of currencies. We had a great distribution model and, and Facebook and its apps and PayPal was a part of that. Um, you know, we had this kind of um, group of companies that was willing to distribute it through its app applications um, to seed it within, you know, the, the U.S. and 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 also, you know, any user of, of the app. So this could have been people in South America and Europe and Asia, um, and we would have potentially had this almost like self-regulating body um, that is beholden to the market. And so, to me, that was like a really good opportunity for us to take a mostly U.S. dollar-denominated stablecoin. Um, you know, mostly managed and regulated by American companies, but with this like uh, viral distribution channel um, of the most popular apps in the world. And you see China kind of doing this with with WeChat. They they will distribute the digital yuan through through WeChat, and they're they're doing it already. And so I feel like we kind of missed the boat. And it's not it wouldn't have been a central bank digital currency, but to me it would have been the happiest medium um, to have. Um, you know, at least something that was beholden to the market where government, you know, controlled currency is is not necessarily beholden to the market. So I'm kind of bummed to see that project get scrapped multiple times. Oh, I'm so happy it died. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have been really sad if like everybody just onboarded to the realm of like crypto stable coins, but they did it in this like kind of like Silicon Valley, like, like VC, kind of Facebook, yeah. kind of, yeah, that was like everybody's thing. I, I, I don't know. It also, seems Facebook's like, lame. Yeah, I mean, the stock price would agree with you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess um, from the from the U.S. government's you know strategic position, I felt like that would have been yeah the right way. But yeah, from yeah. but but why is know, I, I don't know the maybe individual maybe not convince me like why is facebook better than usdc like why can't we just distribute usdc through anybody can distribute usdc through apps like they're all the rails are there right to integrate well because they had a financial incentive to do so and and it would have had a better distribution channel you know like if if facebook would have been the lead on a stable coin we would have seen a u.s denominated stable coin you know spread spread further than what usdc has and us you know um usdc is 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 great it's it's the most popular um you know along with tether but like i don't think it it's seen the distribution that it could have if it had you know applications as partners and i don't think those applications are doing it because they don't have a financial incentive Mm. to to do so so you know my worry is that like i've always expressed this that the digital yuan will will have like uh, will spread a little faster into parts of the world where the you know USDC won't or Tether won't. 
Yeah, I know. I know you. I know you think that. I still. You, you still haven't convinced me of that, though. I. I just feel like. I just feel like stable coins, of which like almost all of them are U.S. dollar based, are just they're just they're like they already they already have like a huge foothold in almost the entire world, and the digital yuan doesn't. And I'm just failing to just failing to see why somebody in like Argentina is going to switch over to the digital yuan when they have like tether on their Binance account and it works like really, really well. And they don't have to trust China, I guess. I mean, I hope, I hope I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I hope hope you you are too. (laughs) It's a scary path for the world. I guess, you know, I, I think China is kind of like, first off, a little caught off guard about how, um, you know, aggressive Russia got. I don't know if they're aware that they were going to invade, but they certainly got caught off guard. And they, they've been even more caught off guard by how much Russia has united, you know, the EU, NATO, e- even you lump in Japan in there, who's who's their neighbor, into kind of like isolating Russia economically to extreme lengths we've never seen before. But at the same time, you know, Russia's only backing right now is, is China. And as far as having like, a client state in in what China is trying to do is is some form of economic imperialism. You know what they're doing with the Belt and Road Initiative, but the, I think Russia presents another progression along that same objective, where you know there may be Russian debt that's denominated in yuan, and when you see the ruble crashing, it seems like an op- opportunity for for China to denominate their debt in the yuan. And kind of seed a currency in a, in a country that is seeing their their currency collapse, and so um, and, and like not only that, but like Russia as a client state is great because it it borders China, so you kind of like take away a lot of you know physical border disputes. But it's a it's a large landmass with a capable army that has a ton of raw materials and energy. So I think like while they are probably cautious that they're seeing too much with allying Russia right now. They want to keep their their relations with the, the U.S. Um, strong and they want to improve them regardless of what you hear about China versus U.S. I think they're kind of looking at this as an opportunistic play and kind of, uh, uh, you know, the economic imperialism route. But that may not convince you now, but by episode 50, you'll be mine. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll think on it a little more. All right. Um, all right. What else we got? I think I'm. I think that was a good uh, dense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. I'm. I think I'm. I think even I'm a uh, economic politic doubt. You get anything, uh, Armand? You probably got something a little more. It's so spiritual it's on your so, mind, right? Yeah, but Take it's us home. Just so not at all what we've been talking about. It's just a weird pivot. It's okay. I think just you non, teased us. You teased us at the beginning. <laughs> I don't know how we can fit this into the, honestly, the podcast is we talk so much money and politics. It's like weird to pivot to like general life stuff. And there's like four people listening at this point anyway. I don't know. I feel like you <laughs> made it this far. Like, hey, kudos to everybody who just listened to yeah, that whole yeah. 
give give him a give him a promo code give him a promo code to join the vip chat or something give us give us a little give us a palate cleanser give the people what they want we should do an hour three po app take a left every every time we enter the third hour you get a po app for for listening well i think the timestamps help like because then yeah if we 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 will definitely keep doing the timestamps because it's like especially if our conversation lengths increase like you can jump around from topic to topic so we should also assume that maybe somebody just went oh yeah i'm gonna skip the china thing and move here so um you know what's been on my mind um beyond all of this i mean all of this is on my mind and that's why i love talking about this stuff and and uh and learning all every day i mean even just this like this situation with uh digital currencies and digital currencies fascinating and so confusing but what that ties into is this abundance of information and there's just so much of it. You know, I, I was reflecting recently on like just the way I grew up, the way we all grew up, we're all about the same age and we grew up in this, uh, you know, kind of like a Goldilocks zone as well, where it was like, we lived in an analog world for quite a while you know, being millennials, being mid thirties. And we had the internet by middle school, you know, dial up AOL. We all remember the sound and that sound like truly changed our lives forever. Every single thing that we all talked about today is possible because of that sound is possible because of that connection to the internet. The internet is the collective mind the shared mind power of everything that has ever existed that we could possibly transcribe and in the web one world publish and print and put into a digital format. And then we've just been building upon that for the last, you know, God, 30 years. And we now have Wikipedia and Google and Google. It's like funny, like, you know, our parents and people of that generation refer to like Google as God, like to them, the idea of such a thing was like, it's, it's impossible. It's in, it's impossible. It's an impossible technology to think like, I think like to my dad, he always like makes the joke of like the things that you can pull out by pushing a button on your phone and asking something called Siri or Alexa, Alexa is even more trippy, right? Cause it's like, Oh my God, yesterday in the shower, I have an Alexa in my bathroom and I, and I asked Alexa a question while I was showering, it was some calculation or measurement or something. And then I went and I did another stat. And the next thing I knew I was like three questions in with Alexa, I'm having a conversation with a fucking AI while I take a shower. What? in the fuck and alexa i can't disconnect right (laughs) actually what am i what's the btc ratio yeah it was some (laughs) bullshit like that and one of my favorite like future you got some weird kinks brother hey man no kink shaming no kink shaming one of my favorite techno futuristic movies is uh is her i think you guys have all seen that with joaquin phoenix falls in love with the AI. So I haven't fallen in love yet, but all of this to illustrate the level of connectivity and abundance of information. And um, I find that 
not only is it so incredibly imperative to be aware 24/7 of what you focus on and what you allow into your mind like that is like the foundational thing that I I think I lost that for a while uh and especially over the last couple of weeks month honestly I would say last two years really is where a lot of this started you know you have covid and the confusion that comes with covid all the data being disputed masks being disputed reality being disputed you know Stephen and I talked about this in the thread another thing that comes with technology and the internet we talked about like what can we even trust anymore we're not even going to be able to trust footage anymore we're not going to be able to trust reality anymore like we'll see a video and it could be a complete fake of somebody famous or our president or another president of another country saying something, maybe one we wake up to tomorrow, you know, Putin threatening nuclear, like I got my finger on the trigger, could be a fake video. So what we put our attention to is more critical than ever before. And I found myself feeling more nervous. I I tend to be a very like, uh, you know, just in terms of like, when, when you look at like, uh, the big five model, like my neuroticism is low, luckily, like very low. I think it's like 6%, you know, that means that 94% of people are, are more neurotic than me, which I was actually surprised by, but still I've noticed it go up. So I can only imagine what that feels like when you're, when you're overly anxious all the time, or you're or you're neurotic and you might worry or think into things. And I noticed it go up and up and up, started to become more cynical over these last couple of years, started to become a little bit more fearful and even at times a little more negative. So I had this like moment the other day where I reached out to my friend, Jason Silva, who I think of as like one of the most positive, optimistic people out there who also deals with his own stuff. But like for, for people that don't know Jason Silva, um, Jason is basically like a modern day philosopher and poet. And, um, you know, he was the host of brain games on that geo and origins on that geo, but he's most well known for his YouTube videos. And he just does these shots of awe, these philosophical rants of pure poetry. And his whole life is about finding flow and focusing on the beauty and the awe of the world. So I reached out to him and I kind of just like told him how I was feeling and we were going back and forth and he sent me this like amazing long voice memo and where it landed, like where we both landed was like information diet is everything. It is the most important thing in life. What you focus on creates your reality. You don't have to know everything. You should not click on everything. And you should be very diligent and conscientious about, not conscientious, but conscious of what you focus on. And it kind of, I, I needed that. I was like, so thank you, Jason. Like, shout out to Jason. Like, thank you. It was the conversation I needed to have and a reminder of like how much beauty there still is in the world, how much good there still is in the world, regardless of like the macro right now, because the macro sucks. The macro objectively sucks right now. So I don't know how you guys have been feeling with that stuff, but I am really taking this information diet thing more seriously than I ever have because it can really affect you and fuck you up. And then 
it changes you. It changes your personality. It changes your behavior. It changes your actions. It changes how much risk you take. It changes the ventures you step into. It changes. It changes everything. I want. I, I love it. I want to know what the the two guys here on our our left side panel here, the two ecom dudes, former or one former ecom dude. Like, does it does it affect you that you guys used to play in like the fucking ad space? Like, does it affect you that you like used to pay, play in like the the click world? Because like you know, as as like a as just like a participant, I don't even know all the tricks and whatever, but like. I'm I'm very like cognizant of like what I click on on the internet and stuff, but like how do you like how do you guys even play it when this is like your your game like this is your your whole life like your profession? I think everything on the internet is nonsense for the <laughs> most part. Like that's like the first rule, right? Once you've like produced a lot of content for search and then you've made a lot of ads and you've kind of seen how the sausage is made, you you just kind of realize like, Oh wow. Like a lot of this is just not really good for me. And it comes from a, it comes from a place of like uh, economic incentive as opposed to incentivizing truth or anything that would be sort of beneficial on like a higher spiritual level. Um, And I think everybody should be like, way more skeptical of everything they see online. It's all just like a giant system that's trying to shape you to believe something, think something, do something in in one particular way. And like oftentimes like people are doing this and they don't even realize that they're just sort of like a part of like a larger system that's doing that. Like they can't see like enough levels up in the the matrix to, to realize that. Um, Yeah. It's a lot of noise. We talk about signal and noise and it's just, it's a lot of noise out there <laughs> online. Uh, you should always like double check your biases. Like, wait, why, why do I actually think this? Is that really real? Like, is that, you know, seek out, yeah, actively seek out alternatives, alternative viewpoints, alternative ideas, like anything you see on Twitter. Like, I don't know, read the comments. Comments are good because it's a good place to have people call out bullshit. It saves you a lot of time. You know, there's often a guy first tweet. You know, the first comments like, oh, that's like actually fake footage from a video game. Here's the thing on YouTube. And you're like, oh, all right. Thank God for the comments. So it's my two cents, Nick. Yeah, I mean, uh, and Armand knows this as much as anyone, but, you know, just in a in a past like uh, professional uh, realm have, you know, garnered hundreds of millions, if not billions of, of visits to websites purely on on promoting content that has a specific headline and it's it's built and split tested thousands of different ways shown to be statistically significant and a b tested every which way to make sure that you click on it and that is how the current business model on the internet works and so you know every time i see a good headline that i'm about to click on i'm like that's a really good headline. That's probably getting a really high click-through rate. And so I think it's, you know, I don't see content anymore. I see business models. You know, whenever I see something that's that's so good that you want to click on it, you're like, I know how that person's making money. Um, so I think it's important to understand the incentives of the person who's feeding you the content. And that's why, you know, often people refer to successful people for advice because, you know, they maybe aren't necessarily providing the content to you to make money. That's just their point of view. They may have like a a grander political 
uh, incentive to get you to come towards their viewpoint. But like in that case, the, the, you know, the, the market of ideas should, should win out. But when you look at like any given website, even the New York times, the Washington post, the wall street journal, you know, Pulitzer winning, uh, publications, they are incentivized to, to get you to click view ads or, or buy a subscription. So I think it's important to understand, um, you know, the incentives that people putting, putting the content out there. What a, what a great, cli- what a great clip that that would make as the uh, clip or of the group. What a great clip that makes. <laughs> but my question back to you, dude, is like, okay, so you understand that like most of these headlines are business models or whatever, but like you still are seeking news and truth right. as an individual, as a human. So like, where do you find that stuff? You, Nick, because like, we, like I, Eric, I'm going to find that in a different in a different place, probably. And I, I actually want to know from like all of us, where do we find our versions of truth in a world where like there's noise fucking everywhere and the signal is so fucking vapid and fleeting? Like, where do you find it? Yeah. I, I mean, I think like having a, a good social circle is actually a, a good... Um, filter for this. Like I use you guys as a filter. Like if it got through you guys, then I know it's like somewhat vetted, right? Someone at least looked at it and was like, this is interesting. And it probably came from a good source. So it's good to have like a nice community of people, whether they're in person or like digital to kind of help you uh, filter that. But that being said, there's still some, still some issues. I think um, in general, the longer form that you can read, the better. I'll be honest. I, I read less books than I used to. And I read more periodicals and essays. I find them a little more like a lot of books should just be essays, you know, like five pages on like why this argument exists. And so, I mean, I've mentioned foreign affairs before the economist um, or even like uh, council on foreign relations in general, um, you know, they put out good podcasts as well. So I think like periodicals and essays are kind of my zone of where it takes effort. It's not, you know, 128 characters. It's not a blog post. It's not click, you know, they tend not to be clickbaity. Um, and then you got to find them from the right people. And like, you're never going to get around the incentive problem. Everyone's going to have some incentive to do something with you. You just have to understand where it's coming from. So the first thing I realized, like when I read a foreign affairs article, usually in the, in the magazine, in the bottom left, they have like a three person byline. And you typically find someone in office, in a company, in a think tank, um, or maybe someone who's in prior office. The best ones, the best ones are the people who just got out of power. So like ex-CFTC chairman, he's got no, he didn't have a job yet, but he just got out of power. He can let you know how he really feels. He's probably (laughs) even putting out his ideas, you know, on market for his next gig or a senator of like a finance committee that is no longer a senator anymore. You know, those people, I feel like, are these uh, brief moments where you get to hear what, you know, what it really is like and what you, what, what really, what's really going on. Um, yeah. I don't know. I guess that's, that's what I, I, I try to do. And, and Twitter is a fucking minefield. So you got to cut more than you had, yeah. I think in, in that area. And I wish I could turn off this feature on Twitter where it shows you posts of the person you're following, what they liked, I don't. I don't want that. I just you, want. You're their not content. supposed to look at your. Like. You're, you're not supposed can't to look you, at your home you feed. Oh, am I? Am I doing it wrong? Yeah, you don't look uh, at your home feed. 
Okay. No home. Okay. Lists only. Next, next uh, in-person night. We gotta, yeah. you gotta give me a tutorial. Yeah, the home feed is garbage on Twitter because it gives you all this stuff that you didn't ask for. It, you, what you <laughs> want? Exactly what I. Oh. Yeah, it's, it, it's garbage. That's why I create those lists. Like I have the crypto one, the politics one, uh, the podcasters oh, one, God. and then I only look at those and tweet deck or whatever. I was gonna ask you guys one time if you guys ever use tweet deck because yeah, I remember that. Like. Because like you can have your personal up, you can have the alfalfa one up, you can have like all the things, you know, it'll show you everything, like however you want it. Like this is what's been liked or here are your lists and here are your DMs all in one like browser screen. What you said, Nick, about incentives and people is really interesting and really important. It's like clearly most people today have become aware of like the matrix levels that Stephen was referring to when it comes to the news, trust in the news, all time low, just like Biden's approval rating. So the, 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 the like situation is that people have moved on to citizen journalists and podcasts, but even those have really bothered me lately, like where I'm starting to lose trust with a lot of these people, because again, you have to take the time to go to the byline to understand what they do. And oftentimes all they're doing, their incentive is just to like sell you into their mastermind or sell you on their NFT that they're about to launch. And I'm not going to call people out by names because there's some people I admire who do this stuff. And I get it because the real incentive they're, they're living in a capitalist world. Like we're all capitalists. Like we have to survive. We have to make money. You have to build a business like I, I get it. So I think like the root, root, root thing that I always land on is like, can we adjust these incentives at all? Is there like a new modern version of capitalism? Because I do like capitalism that maybe is a little bit more aligned with like people as well as profit, not the like super, you know, people over profit version or like the nonprofit version or like the B corporation version, but just something that at least acknowledges like the health and the prosperity of human beings alongside profit. Maybe, maybe not, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe, maybe the model isn't possible. Yeah, I hear you. I don't know. It's a, it's a great question. question. I'm terrified to start unpacking that now. Cause I feel like we're going to go another five hours. If we unpack that, that's, that's pretty deep. We should, we should I mean, unpack, a, unpack a little. Yeah. We should, we should put a pin I mean, in that a little bit. I mean, give them a little taste if you want. I think it starts with our listeners uh, in a weird way. Because, oh. like, oh. <laughs> I, I think it does. Because, like, I've, I've been the guy uh, writing the goddamn headlines and whatever for our clips. And, like, what I've learned in a very short amount of time is that it's, like, it's not like, hey, why we're bullish ETH. It's like why ETH is going to 25K. It's like, like that is the, the way you like write things. Um, but like maybe we can change the game in that like, you know, we can, we can be radically moderate, not only in political views, but in like business and like everything where it's like, you don't need to be so fucking polarizing to get clicks and to get, yeah. you know, like, I agree. And, and maybe we can end on this, but, you know, kind of to, to our listeners and, and talking about why people get people in communities and like 
I will let you know that we don't have any incentives. And the one reason we want people in the Discord is because we we talked about this yesterday, like or yeah, on this Sunday. Is important we want to just share. more people like us to talk yeah. to. Like that that's it. So um, you know, maybe we can kind of lead the way and just uh, you know, we don't have any like real incentives. It's just we want more people like us to chat with and and red team our ideas and and bring up new ideas and and keep the thought kind of uh spicy and up to date and, and everyone there. I love, so I love that we landed um, on that. Yeah. It felt so good because like we were trying to figure out like, okay, what do we what do we all want here? Like what's the purpose of this and why would like is it is it is it, you know, deal flow or or your brand or what is it? And and like literally where we landed was like how incredible would it be to have like a huge Discord community full of like the four the like who we are and the way we think and access to the information that we have filtered so it's it's back to that point that nick made about uh, for me you guys are my filter for information so if you just had a bunch of people that think the same way that have the same ability to filter information parse out truth signal from noise to steven's point and then share that and have a take on it and throw it in the discord. And then you could have a meetup and everyone's discussing these things and they all are like purple pilled and radically moderate. Not that they all have to be radically moderate, (laughs) but if they all are somewhat (laughs) in line with that type of thinking, how fucking cool is that? And that's where we landed. It was like, wow. Then from there, like anything is possible, whatever we want to create, whatever we want to do. Um, That's, that's a beautiful thing. Steven, I feel like you, you still want to say something about the previous yeah 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 what was your previous thing you 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 were yearning for a, a, a like a a new model of capitalism that that takes into account other things yes the like gross i mean we're already moving towards that aren't we right like the the market a hundred years ago the only discovery mechanism it had to optimize for was like price that's already different in this day and age, obviously, like as we like network more together as humans, as social media becomes a thing, right? You've already seen brands optimize for things other than like, and, and you could make the argument that they are actually optimizing for price in the long run. They're just doing it in a different sort of more socially conscious way, but they are taking stuff into account other than like, who wants to buy this widget at xyz price and what is the optimal way to sell the widget that's why all so many corporations now have this sort of like huge pr arm that's doing like you know social justice stuff or whatever the hot topic of the day is because they're trying to top tap into that and yeah they're trying to sell more stuff but they realize that like the new generation of humans does care more about other than just getting like the best like widget for like the lowest price that's like not something the, like like our generation cares about, I think the younger generations care about that even less, and that's probably just going to keep happening. So I think we are moving in that direction. Um, as to your point about the Discord, I think you this is what you meant to say, but like I think what we're not we're not looking for like people who think like us. We we we, we totally want people who think nothing like us. I think it'd be like way more sure, sure. interesting. But yeah, like you want you want people that are motivated by like the same sort of end goal, which is like this sort of like higher pursuit of like truth in in the world, right? Well, that's how we you think. Can come at that that's what from I mean like a, for sure. Like we, I know that's what you mean. That I know that's okay. what you mean. 
But yeah, like we don't, you don't want a Discord full of like a whole bunch of like you know, down the center modern. No, It'd be very no, boring. No, no. It'd be a very boring place. Like you want, yeah, of course you want some like radical leftists, but like who are like in in good faith pursuing like the same objective. Yeah. I mean, that's truth that's seekers, the spice man. of life there. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Truth seekers. Truth seekers. People that think like us in terms of how they process and disseminate information. Yeah. Yes. Which the, is the not process. an easy task. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. I like this. I like this. All right, guys. I think that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, hop in the Discord, alfalfapod.com. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTubes. Um, share with your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Bye. All right, you little DGens, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed. Head to alfalfapod.com for all of our links and socials. And if you want some real alpha, head to collectiveshift.io and join thousands of members getting the latest insights and alerts from a team of expert research analysts all there to help you create more wealth and freedom through crypto. And don't forget to use our discount code alfalfa for 50% off your first month. Until next time, see you then. Peace.